Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 202, Scotland, Cornwall and Warbeck. Last week, Perkin, having tried Kent and Ireland, turned up at the court of the Fresh Prince of Scotland, James IV. Before I go into that, one of the things I want to get over in these episodes is the constant threat to Henry's security. We have a problem of hindsight with Henry, I think. We know that he survives. We know that he founds one of England's most famous dynasties. And it's so very easy to minimise the danger to his rule, or at least to minimise the level of paranoia felt by Henry and his inner council. Because as the saying goes, just because Henry was paranoid didn't mean they weren't out to get him. And it's difficult to criticise Henry for spying on his subjects if his spies kept coming up with stuff though it is perfectly reasonable to criticise him for making stuff up or overreacting. So, as an example that there was some reality behind his worries, let me take you back just a bit to 1494. Warbeck is still in the Low Countries at this point, did not yet set out for Ireland, and Bray and his spies turned up a suggestion that someone very close to the throne indeed is corresponding with Warbeck. And that person turned out to be William Stanley. William Stanley, you'll remember, is the Stanley that picked the crown out of the hedge at Bosworth and gave it to Henry. Now, for the moment, Henry and Bray waited and watched, looking for evidence, because they just couldn't believe that it would be so. It was difficult to believe because William Stanley had been very well rewarded for his rather tardily delivered but crucial support for Henry. He was reputed to be the very richest commoner in England, with an income of 3,000 quid a year, more than most peers too. And yet, Stanley didn't appear to be satisfied. In the words of Virgil, he was, quote, 
more mindful of the favours he had given than of those he had received. Nonetheless, it was difficult for Henry to believe. Stanley was the Lord Chamberlain, with access, therefore, to the private apartments of the king. He was one of the three or four most favoured of the nobility in Henry's grace and favour. Only de Vere and Jasper Tudor stood higher. Why would he risk all of that on an adventurer? So Henry had to be sure. After all, William Stanley was also the brother of his mother's husband. But then, Henry's inner council had a stroke of luck. Someone came forward with information, a man called Robert Clifford. Stroke of luck is one phrase for it. If you were super cynical, you might assume that Bray had bribed Clifford. But this is speculation and paranoia. So let's assume that this informant, Robert Clifford, was playing with a straight bat. According to Clifford, Henry's suspicions were absolutely true. Stanley had sent him, Clifford, abroad to speak to Warbeck. In the early days of 1495, William Stanley was arrested, taking him completely by surprise. Bray's agents were at his castle of Holt in North Wales like a rat up a drain. Inside, there was nothing conclusive, you know, like little dolls of Henry with pins stuck in them, or scribbles in Stanley's hand saying, I hate Henry and I'm going to kill him. But they did find a lot of money, 10,000 quid in cash, which is plenty to pay an army. And they also found a Yorkist livery collar studded with white roses. Now that, of course, could very easily have just been a memento, but to the suspicious and worried mind, it looked bad. Stanley's attitude strongly suggests that he either thought he'd done nothing seriously wrong, or alternatively, that he was a Burke. He was put on trial on the 6th of February 1495. In the chair, as Constable of England, was none other than his brother, Thomas Stanley. William admitted what he'd done, but was apparently haughty, distant, arrogant and dismissive. It's not quite clear what the exact accusations were, though clearly the charge was treason. All Virgil says is that Clifford reported Stanley as saying of Warbeck that if he was sure that the man was Edward's son, he would never take up arms against him. Stanley appeared to think that this was trivial chicken feed, for which no one could be executed, that it was a minor indiscretion in the past and that it was on this basis that he'd pleaded guilty, and that he'd be given at worst a slap on the wrist and told to stay behind after school for some extra chamberlaining. He pointed out that it was entirely conditional. He'd said if Warbeck was Edward's son. Sadly for Stanley, the judges didn't think this was a good excuse. Not a good excuse at all, in fact. And that just adding the word if would, quote, allow every man to express his malice and blanch his danger. And you have to say, they have a point. If I can't find my sword, I would slaughter every man, woman and child in this village. Doesn't immediately hop into the reassuring box. William Stanley was therefore condemned to be hanged, drawn and quartered. Henry relented just enough to change that to beheading, and so on the 16th of February, on Tower Hill, William Stanley's career came to an end. Was he guilty? The case against the deeply anti-Henry suspicion is that given Henry was an avaricious man with a deep love of cash, he could hardly do better than bring Stanley down. And indeed, his lands were confiscated and taken into the hands of the king. Virgil's view was that Stanley's actions indicated, quote, 
lukewarmness to King Henry rather than treason. But the likelihood is, actually, William Stanley was guilty, insofar as his actions constitute treason. He had shown conspicuous loyalty to Edward IV, and it's possible he was motivated by feelings of honour rather than personal gain. But the treason laws were very tough, and on that basis he probably was guilty. Either way, the political community was shocked by the fall of such a powerful man. And so Henry had further evidence to add to his paranoia and to back up his paranoia. OK, so let's go back to Scotland. On the 20th of November 1495, Perkin Warbeck tipped up at Stirling Castle. Now, whether James IV really believed his claims to be the real Richard is not knowable. But certainly he behaved as though he did, because this was a great opportunity for the young king. Here was his chance to put pressure on Maximilian and the Spaniards. So he welcomed Warbeck with open arms, fated, wined and dined him, and gave him a place at court. Down south, Henry was determined to prove that there was no future for Scotland in threatening his and England's security. In addition, Warbeck's presence in Scotland threatened Henry's most cherished plan. Isabel and Ferdinand made it clear that marriage with Catherine would not go ahead while, quote, a drop of doubtful royal blood remained to Henry's throne. Henry's inner council convened and various schemes were planned, fed by Henry's effective network of agents in the Scottish court. In the end, Richard Fox was sent to treat for a marriage alliance between James IV and Henry's daughter Margaret, but a scheme was even considered to kidnap Warbeck. It's a rather fascinating interlude, I am assuming, rightly or wrongly, that a man called John Taylor, the guy who had originally recruited Perkin, was still with him. A mentor, or almost jailer, if you like. I imagine Perkin could no more back out of his role than stop breathing by this time, and I imagine he was pretty good at his role as well. There is, incidentally, a famous drawing of Warbeck, which is on the website, of course. He was a model of good looks for the time, and I think we can assume that he was able to act the part completely convincingly. Now, there is also a letter which survives from Warbeck. It survives in the Spanish state papers. And the letter is to Lady Catherine Gordon, the daughter of the Earl of Huntley and the King's cousin. The letter is also on the website. It is a paean of love to Lady Catherine, probably written at this time. Here's a bit of it. I shall perhaps be the happiest of all your admirers and the happiest man on earth, since I have reason to hope you will think me worthy of your love. If I represent to my mind all your perfections, I am not only compelled to love, to adore and to worship you, but love makes me your slave. Whether I was waking or sleeping, I cannot find rest or happiness except in your affection. All my hopes rest in you and in you alone. Is this good stuff, by the way? Answers on a postcard to the shed. Anyway, it ended by describing Catherine as the brightest ornament in Scotland. Actually, I'm told that the letter is apparently reasonably standard, written rather according to a formula, passionate as it all sounds. Anyway, rather remarkably, Catherine and Perkin were married. There really is every chance that this was a love match and that Catherine believed the story and went willingly. The two would be together until Perkin's death, as you'll see. But their first child, Richard, was born by September 1496 and a second would be born in 1497. 
It would be difficult to believe that James IV would throw someone as highly born as Catherine to a marriage with an imposter. So it seems likely that James believed Perkins' story. But there's little doubt also that James's support included a degree of calculation. It fitted with his aggressive strategy towards England, as events would prove. In 1491, he'd signed a treaty with France which provided that Scotland would attack Henry if England attacked France. And Scotland had not renewed a truce with England. Either way, in the meantime, he stumped up over a thousand quid to keep Perkin in luxury and he paid for a glittering court wedding for the two of them at Edinburgh Castle in January 1496. By the time young Richard Warbeck was born in September 1496, James and Perkin had led an army over the border into England, burning and pillaging in a good old traditional fashion and issuing excited proclamations about the glorious return of Richard IV, exhorting the men of Northumberland and England to rise up and support their rightful king. The men of Northumberland and England did no such thing. The men of Northumberland and England looked at a bloke riding along, pillaging with a Scottish king, and decided they didn't like the cut of his jib. And anyway, everyone was sick of the Yorkist thing by now, even if they happened to believe this new pretender's story. Warbeck, meanwhile, was horrified by the violence going on, and he begged James not to treat his subjects so harshly, and when the complete indifference of the English towards him became clear, he fled back to Catherine. Within six days, the whole thing was over, after an abortive attack on Norham Castle, and James was back with him too. As a warrior prince of the finest quality, James IV is unlikely to have been terribly impressed with this Richard IV. The invasion allowed Henry to call and mobilise the support of a parliament. Taxation was duly approved, and in the short term the King's Council authorised a loan of £120,000 to raise an army to visit fire and sword on Scotland. Martial law was declared, border garrisons bolstered. Henry's agents flooded Flanders, Germany and Switzerland, recruiting for mercenary contingents, and a mercenary army was assembled outside London. By late spring 1497, it was making its way towards Scotland under the command of Giles Daubeny. In all likelihood, James IV was by now regretting his earlier support of Warbeck and was keen to dump him. And as it happens, luck was on his side. Help was to come his way from the most unlikely of places, Cornwall. All around the country, the King's tax collectors had set out to do their work and collect the taxes agreed by Parliament. They worked zealously, and of course their work was unpopular. As ever, the way taxes were collected played against the poorest in society. The assessment for tax was based on land values and assessed by the local magistrates. Now, of course, all the country gentry and nobility knew each other well. How easy it was for a gentleman, let us call him Gentleman George, to sidle up to a magistrate. Let's call him Magistrate John. And he'd clap John on the back and share the latest gossip. And in the course of said conversation, surprisingly, the tax assessment would come up, good Lord. George would make the point that his land, of course, had been very badly affected by the flood, storms, drought, delete as applicable. And really it returned next to nothing now. He assumed John would take note of that. John assured him that, of course, he would. 
George might sign off by casually mentioning that he happened to have a side of lamb his wife had just mentioned they must send to their good friend John. Now, this is, of course, a scurrilous attack on the honesty of every good Englishman. But down in Cornwall in 1497, it's a scenario they recognised. Right down near the tip of Cornwall is the parish of St. Cavern, and in St. Cavern worked a man called Michael Joseph. He was known locally as Anne Goff, and this sounds like a, a very clever and interesting name, but in fact it means blacksmith in Cornish. Back in 1497, the vast majority of Cornish spoke their own language, a Britonic Celtic language. The last native speaker of the language is traditionally Dolly Pentreath, who died in 1777. You might remember that Cornwall was the last of the southwestern counties to be conquered and brought into Wessex after the Battle of Hinkston Down in 838, and that was at least in part because of their different heritage as the ancient British Kingdom of Dumnonia. Now back then, Cornwall, although no doubt as every bit as beautiful as it is today, was not considered a fertile or fruitful land. Living was hard. Nowadays, of course, tourism helps quite a bit. Indeed, if you're heading down to Cornwall in high summer, I'm told you might as well walk as take the car, because you'll probably get there quicker. I exaggerate for effect. Anyway, back to Anne Goff. The tax collection in Cornwall aroused more than the usual fury. It was always touch and go for any tax whether riots resulted, and this time riots did indeed erupt, as accusations of corruption were thrown at the heads of the magistrates. It's worth noting that this was the largest single grant made in any parliament since Agincourt. Now, most riots just died down and are lost to history or remembrance of all but the most nerdy, but in this case, there happened to be leaders of talent to fan the flames, namely Anne Goff, and also a local squire called Thomas Flamank. With reluctant admiration, the historian Edward Hall recorded that they were, quote, men of high courage and stout stomachs, who cast oil and pitch into a fire and ceased not to provoke and prick them forward like frantic persons to more mischief. The rebels had the age-old misconception of peasant rebels throughout the Middle Ages. It was this, that their good lord the king could not, would not, have countenanced such a vicious tax. After all, he was anointed by God. He could do no wrong. He was their friend. No, the villains were those nasty councillors around the king who had advised him so badly and misled him. So what they must do is march to Westminster to see the king. They'd tell him and he'd sort it all out. The Cornish were quite clear who these nasty councillors were. They were the Archbishop Morton, Thomas Lovell and Reginald Bray. These are the men that must be punished. Interestingly, Thomas Flamenck was a lawyer and he appeared to argue that since the tax was to fund the war against Scotland, it was for the North to pay, which speaks to a regionalism and lack of English nationalism, which was probably not peculiar to Cornwall. The first loyalty was to one's own country, which in that day and age meant your county as much as it meant England. However, do note, none of these guys were suggesting any intention to support Perkin Warbeck as the new king. At the moment, these two things are completely unconnected. The rebels are not aiming at Henry, just at his evil counsellors. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The size of the rebel army that set out was renormous, at least 10,000. On their way east, they gathered numbers and they gathered a noble leader, one James Touchett, heir to the honour of Audley, a name we've heard in the past. What possessed Audley to join the rebels, Lord only knows, since, as we know, no rebel revolt ever succeeded in convincing the king to make any permanent changes and the vengeance visited on the perpetrators was truly horrid. But anyway, James Touchett did indeed join the rebels. The rebels marched in two contingents towards London. The ease with which they got to London is really rather remarkable. I suspect they were being cheered on as they went. In stark contrast to royal armies, they also paid for all their food as they travelled, rather than taking what they needed and promising to pay a paltry price at some future date, otherwise known as the system of purveyance. By early June, Audley had reached Wallingford. Let me take you away from that a few miles west of Wallingford, to the manor of Ewelm, on the edge of the Chiltern Hills, home to the De La Poole Dukes of Norfolk. The manor was now home to the Earls of Suffolk and the current Earl of Suffolk, the 25-year-old Edmund. Ha! The sharper amongst you, or indeed all of you, since anyone clever enough to the history of England is necessarily sharp, will have noticed that I said Earl, and of course you would have been expecting Duke. How come the downgrade? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Edmund de la Poole was a ward of the king when he came into his inheritance in 1493, and his lands, of course, had been attainted with his brother Lincoln's failed rebellion with Lambert Simnel in 1487. So, a deal of horse trading went on with the mean, tight-fisted Henry. The upshot was that Edmund succeeded as Earl of Suffolk, not Duke of Suffolk, because he wasn't rich enough to maintain the status of Duke. To any medieval noble, obsessed by dynasty, this was bad enough. But what was worse was that Henry had imposed an enormous debt of £5,000, which the Earl had to pay back in yearly instalments. Edmund was therefore continually in debt and continually forced to face the humiliation in the front of his more gloriously attired peers. Nonetheless, to this point, Suffolk was a loyal and active member of Henry's court, but had his debts mounted, so did his level of grump. Anyway, that night in June 1497, Suffolk held a detachment of men seeking to delay the Cornish rebels' march from Wallingford. On hearing of the rebellion, Henry had frantically sent orders to Giles Daubeny to divert the Royal Army back to London, and had decided that without this, he could not confront the rebels. And so he sent a dispatch rider to Ewelm to order Suffolk to fall back along the Thames towards London. That night, Suffolk had turned in before the messenger arrived. He turned in with his mate, George Neville, Baron Bergeveni, with whom he was sharing a bed. Nothing fruity in this. Beds were scarce, good ones even scarcer. Bed-sharing was a common thing. Bergevani did have a slightly dicey political reputation, though. He'd been a household servant of Richard III's, 
It was from an illegitimate branch of the all-famous Neville family. So he was on the watch list. On reaching Ewelm, the dispatch rider burst into Suffolk's bedroom, whereupon Bergevenny hid his head under the bedclothes. When the rider was gone, a conversation a bit like this went on. What on earth were you doing hiding your head under the covers, you big chump? Were you scared, you big boy's blouse? Scared? Me? I'm not scared of anything except Carlisle on a Saturday night. No, it's because I didn't want that bloke to tell the king where I am. I suspect the king couldn't give a tinker's curse where you are, George Petal. But why? Because the time has come, Suffolk or Fruit. The time has come to decide. Keh, decide what, you big nurple? Whether to fight for the king or to fight for the rebels. They're only just down the road. Joining them now would be easy. What will you do, Suffolk? Now is the time. Well, at this time, Suffolk was in no doubt. He was not far enough gone in debt and frustration to make such a desperate throw. But Neville, he was wilder. He felt his time had come. He was going. He was going to join those rebels. Suffolk had his head screwed on and he grabbed his friend's shoes and he wouldn't give them back until he promised to calm down. Eventually, the moment passed, the pair of them pulled back with their detachment along the Thames. Now, I tell you this for a bit of colour and to introduce the latest de la Poule to the story. There is, incidentally, an article on the History of England website on the de la Poule family, should you have a dull Sunday afternoon ahead of you. With Daubeny and his army still in the process of returning to London, the rebels convened at Blackheath. I mean, where else? Anyone who's anyone in the rebel department heads for Blackheath, in striking distance of London Bridge. At this point, panic spread through the rebels with the news that the Royal Army had returned and was approaching. This was bad, but probably to be expected. What was worse was that the King was with them. Now, this was really bad news. They'd expected to be on the King's side. They couldn't fight him. They were simply taking a petition to him. If they fought him, they'd become rebels. They'd become traitors. So this was really bad news. There were three responses. Some took the honourable path. They legged it back home, jumped into bed, pulled the covers over their heads and pretended they'd been there all the time. Why didn't you call me for supper? Or the dishonourable path. A group secretly contacted Daubeny and offered to deliver Anne Goff and the other leaders to him. Daubeny, on the other hand, was honourable enough to refuse this one. And he was pretty confident he was going to get them anyway. Or the third path was the way of pottiness. To hold your head high, to walk into battle bravely, waving a stick as the hardened, armoured army of mercenaries getting on for twice your size came at you. Probably 9,000 walked the way of pottiness, and Goff, Audley and Flamanc among them. On the 17th of June, 1497, the rebels advanced to a place called Deptford Strand, blocking the pilgrim's way down to Canterbury that Chaucer's pilgrims took. It was a surprisingly hard-fought battle, as it happens, at one point, Daubeny himself was captured, but the rebels let him go. Why? But it was never going to happen. The rebels were, in the end, given a thorough and complete larruping. All three rebel commanders were taken before the king and council on the 19th of June at the Tower. The London Chronicle described the captured rebel captain riding behind a yeoman of the guard, the smith being clad in a jacket of white and green of the king's colours, and held as good countenance, and spake as boldly to the people 
as he had been at his liberty. On the 27th of June, 1497, Anne Gough and Flamanc were drawn through the streets from the Tower to Tyburn and hanged, until they were dead, which was actually a small gesture of leniency on the king's part. None of that frying of genitalia while you still lived, which is such a bore. Anne Gough took it well. According to Hall, the historian again, he, quote, was of such stout stomach and high courage that at the same time that he was drawn on the hurdle towards his death, he said he should have a name perpetual and a fame permanent and immortal. And that is true. His head was displayed on London Bridge with those of his fellow leaders. Now, you might remember that what feels like about five years ago, I started all this Cornish thing by saying that James IV, tired of the strategy of supporting Warbeck, had a stroke of luck. Well, this was a handy excuse to kick Warbeck out of the door. Go and join those rebels, why don't you? That's where you can get some support. And look, when you attack from Cornwall, I, James, will attack from Scotland, OK? And so, Warbeck gathered the warriors he could from Falkland Palace, where he was staying in Fife, about 300 of them. And at the beginning of July 1497, he set out on a ship James had eagerly provided for him. Warbeck's pregnant wife Catherine and their baby Richard would join them later, setting out from air, which is interesting. Had Catherine been inclined, I assumed that would have been a reasonable time to back out. Or at least, stay in Scotland and see how things went. But later in July... Perkin landed at Waterford in Ireland looking for support, but Ireland was done with pretenders now that Kildare was in the saddle. Once his wife had joined him, Warbeck set out again, and on the 7th of September he landed in Cornwall. While he was at sea, Henry had come to the conclusion that George Orr was better than War War, which is a conclusion Henry frequently reached, actually. George Orr was so much cheaper. Before Warbeck landed in Cornwall, Richard Fox was around the table with James IV. The very month that Warbeck turned around to encourage his army, only to find he was talking to a field and a bunch of sheep, a treaty was signed between England and Scotland. It was a seven-year truce, a marriage between Henry's daughter Margaret and James. Margaret was currently just eight years old, 16 years younger than James. They would married in 1503 when she was 14. Their first child would be born when Margaret was 19 in 1507. This treaty achieved the security on the Scottish border that Henry needed, at least for the rest of his reign. In a hundred years or so, it assured Scotland of the ultimate victory, since they would then rule England under the Stuarts for a hundred years, once the Welsh had had their go, and the English would then duly turn to the Germans, as you do. Anyway, the long and short was that James had never had any intention of supporting Warbeck's invasion. As far as he was concerned, Perkin was a busted flush. Back in Cornwall, meanwhile, people had flocked to Perkin's banner, with their sticks and their pitchforks. But Warbeck knew he was playing the end game. He left his wife, probably grieving for the loss of their baby, their second child, which appears to have died either very young or in childbirth, at a place called St. Baran, which is pretty much as far from anywhere as you can get in Cornwall. Perkin then advanced to lay siege to Exeter. He had a substantial number of men, but not enough, 
and no equipment to get inside the walls, and so the Earl of Devon drove him off with ease. Warbeck marched on, but Taunton closed its gates and didn't want to know him either. And as Henry approached with his army on the 21st of September, if Warbeck had happened to look round, he might have noticed that his army was strangely silent. Largely because his army was no longer there. They'd found some urgent lint that needed removing from behind the sofa back home. John Taylor, the arch-schemer who presumably had been at Warwick's side all the way through this adventure, fled and escaped to France. Warbeck fled to Bewley Abbey on the south coast, but was recognised and dragged out of sanctuary. Where have we heard that before? Let me take Perkins' story to its conclusion then and ignore chronology just for a moment. Catherine was sent for by Henry and she joined her husband. Perkin by then had made a full confession and even written to Mum asking for a few quid. Once Catherine arrived, it was made very clear that she was to be regarded as a victim of abduction and rape and from now on she was called Catherine Huntley, given she was daughter of the Earl of Huntley. Virgil has her upbraiding Warbeck and actually setting her cap at a besotted Henry, which is all a bit daft, but nonetheless, Perkin and Catherine remained a couple though not allowed to cohabit. Catherine joined Elizabeth of York's household, actually, where the two women got on like a house on fire, by all accounts, and Catherine was to be chief mourner at Elizabeth's funeral. However, Richard, her first son, appears to have died. With Perkin, Henry followed the Lambert-Simnel approach at first. Warbeck was given a gilded cage. At first sight very lenient, Henry allowed Perkin to become a member of the court. What hell! that must have been for Warbeck. Without any resources or status, he must have been mocked and insulted constantly, all the while living with shame and fury. Small wonder that on the June the 9th, 1498, someone mm, spookily left a window unlocked in Westminster Palace, probably with a large sign saying Warbeck's this way, and Warbeck duly took the opportunity. Like a blithering idiot, he then claimed a sanctuary at Sheen, as if that ever did any good. One conclusion is that it was all a put-up job. The two royal servants who allowed it all to happen got off scot-free, so maybe Henry just wanted done with Warbeck. Though to set against that conspiracy theory, I'm really not sure Henry needed an excuse. After all, Warbeck was a rebel. But oh dearie me, life changed for Warbeck then. He was stuck in the stocks, perched on the top of a pile of barrels and forced to publicly repeat his confessions. He was locked in a windowless room in the tower, and at the end of July he was brought in to see the Spanish ambassador. He was shackled and chained. He had been savagely beaten, so that his good looks were gone forever. The ambassador noted that, quote, I and all the other persons there believed his life would be very short. Warbeck had been brought to show the Spanish that everything was under control, that the marriage between Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur could all go ahead. Henry had crossed a line, no more Mr Nice Guy. He also wanted done with the poor old Edward, Earl of Warwick, the son of the Duke of Clarence and any other potential claimant to the throne about whom the anxious Spanish parents might worry. In 1499, there were murmurings of a plot amongst the four jailers guarding Warbeck and Warwick, planning to free the pair and raise rebellion. Henry and Bray knew all about it, they could have stopped it at any time. Instead, royal agents secretly joined the group, encouraging, shaping it. 
and in August 1499 he finally closed the net. Warbeck was tried for treason and condemned in November. On the 23rd of November, the 25-year-old was pulled along through the streets of London on a hurdle as per normal all the way to Tyburn near modern-day Marble Arch. And there, with a noose around his neck, he confessed one more time, begged for forgiveness from everyone whose noses he'd put out of joint and composed himself. The ladder was whipped away, he dangled and all that, and the manipulations, beatings and humiliations were finally all over. But you've got to feel sorry for poor old Edward, Earl of Warwick. True enough, he'd responded to the conspirators. But look, the lad was 24. Fourteen of those years had been spent in captivity. It was said he was so inexperienced he didn't know, quote, a goose from a capon. Which statement some have taken to mean that he was mentally retarded, but we simply don't know. His trial was a joke. He just looked confused. He had to be forced to answer and say anything. On the 28th of November, the poor bloke was finally released from prison by an axe on Tower Hill. In theory, Henry could now breathe easier. Certainly the way was now clear for the Spanish marriage. But these constant threats to his security had affected him. His account books show payments to fabled magical health treatments, payments for astrologers and prophecies. He was ill, he was tired, and he was out of patience all of which we'll hear more about next time. Next week, it's back to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast and the reconquest of the Southern Danelaw and the story of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians. For the moment, good luck everyone and have a great week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.